You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is Chad Peace. Chad was born and raised in San Diego and still lives there today. He is a nationally recognized leader in election law, voter rights, and is a legal strategist for the Independent Voter Project. Chad has managed and developed campaigns to increase voter rights and participation, to promote and expand California's nonpartisan primary efforts, and to reach out to voters who are often otherwise ignored. Chad's developed the voter strategy or voter outreach strategy for California's successful nonpartisan primary initiative and conducted the campaign to draft a current U.S. senator to run for office. Most recently, he authored the city of San Diego's Measure K and manages voter outreach efforts in local, state, and national efforts, uh, including a major candidate for the president of the United States. Uh, welcome to the show, Chad Peace. Thanks for having me. Good to be My first question is, I think the question everyone asks when they speak to someone from San Diego, how's the weather? Is it 70 and sunny? <laughs> Actually, today it is. <laughs> of it course. Is. Yeah. Of course it is. Uh-huh. That's funny. I, in Oklahoma, get similar questions, but my answers are always more depressing. Oh, sorry about that. Well, that's <laughs> the way it goes. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about how you come to this work. I know, obviously, you went to law school, which I think is a somewhat common entry point for a lot of folks who work in politics. But is that how you got first involved? What What is it that, that brought you into working in politics? Oh, um, like everybody's story, you know, it depends on where you want to start it, right? Um, part of, I think, what frames my involvement in the reform space is the perspective that I bring, which is different than a lot of others. And really that's the, that's the whole point of democracy is getting a bunch of people from a different perspectives to uh, come to peaceful resolutions on things. Um, You know, full disclosure, I grew up in a family with a democratic legislator. Father was in the assembly and then the Senate of California for 22 something years. Um, Some people uh, when they find out are like, holy cow, your mom's a Republican? Like, how did they stay married? Well, uh, we we put up with a lot of food fights at the dinner table, um, you know, when I was young. Um, but they were always in a, you know, good spirit and their substantive discussions and stuff. So I had one side of my family, very Republican, the other side, very Democrat. And I kind of grew up in that environment where we had honest discussions and, um, heard different sides of the different sides of the story. So I think you could start there. Um, you know, after college, you know, I was young, early, early twenties, uh, working in a corporate environment probably making too much money for that age in my life. Um, and, uh, I saw a presidential candidate on the stage talking about civil liberties and, you know, um, non-interventionist foreign policy and stuff. And I only bring that up because, you know, one of my friends was very passionate about it and went and started with some people online. This is like 2007 or so before really, you know, online was being used for politics. But long story short, you know, spent a couple of years doing that. And we helped raise a lot of money for what you would call outsider candidates. Um, You know, did some things in that, you know, the small L libertarian world. 
And then um, after that, realized, well, there's not really a, a, a too big of a future here in you know, third party independent candidate politics. And so I'll go back to law school. And I think it was in law school, I, I probably moderated my pers- my own perspective a little bit, um, took some classes like law of democracy and um, wasn't exactly sure where I was going to go with my law degree, was confident I wasn't going to go work for a big law firm. Um, and then I got approached by the Independent Voter Project, which in full disclosure, at, at the time, my father was one of a number of board members. Um, and they asked, they said, hey, we have this... Um, this election initiative where we're going to make California's primaries nonpartisan. And you know, that stuff you guys did, uh, you know, online, uh, do you think you could do that to help us pass election reform in California? I said, well, you know, this is two different animals, but um, I think we can put together a strategy. So, I mean, long story short, uh, what we did for the nonpartisan primary, we developed a digital effort. And this is at the time when you, I mean, you could get 10,000 impressions on Google for five cents and you could get Facebook followers for, for nothing, right? Because people weren't actually doing it quite yet in the commercial world to its full extent, let alone the political world. So, um, you know, in that strategy, you know, we built an online platform and what we discovered in our polling and stuff is that you didn't have to tell independent voters to vote yes on a nonpartisan primary or no. The hurdle in California was that this is a nonpartisan primary placed on a closed primary initiative uh, um, uh, ballot, right, where independent voters don't have much of a reason to go to the ballot because they can't vote for candidates. So our whole strategy was leveraging the digital space. We had about, you know, a couple million dollars, which may sound like a lot, but when you're in a state like California with at the time 17 million voters, right, it's not exactly a ton of money. So we did targeted digital advertising to, you know, um, and this wasn't just an online effort. They had, they had offline components, but really just to tell independent voters, hey, there might be a reason for you to show up to the polls. So, um, you know, if I'm going to boil it down, the elevator summary was the the traditional political consultants, the Republicans, the Democrats and stuff um, pretty much thought it was a dead, dead deal that there's no way you could pass it in the primary because by the conventional turnout models, it wouldn't have passed. All right. I'd like to, you know, just like any consultant, take credit for for success and and deny participation in, in any failures. But, you know, it passed. And there was a large blip of voters who were independent, who came out to the polls, who really only had one thing to vote for. And that that was that was our effort. It wasn't even an advocacy campaign. It was an education campaign said there's something on the ballot might be a reason to go vote. This would give you the right to vote for candidates in the future. And um, that's kind of how I got into this world. And, um, you know, there's not exactly a lot of money in, (laughs) in the election reform, especially when you're taking on really both sides of the establishment. Um, so on the one hand, I tried to do what I could, you know, did voter education efforts in Maine, tried to help out as we could in, in like opening up uh, uh, Colorado, um, you know, and more as an advisor and getting to know folks across the country who were approaching election reform from different perspectives. And then on the other hand, you know, developing a company where after that effort, it was just, I really kind of fell into digital media as just folks around town, whether they're from, you know, nonprofits or 
quasi-government organization said, hey, can you do some digital stuff for us? Can you do some stuff for us? And, you know, today we have, my company has uh, 13 employees in San Diego. We have 12 in Mexico. Um, and, you know, we do project everything from digital media for, for jump ropes to cannabis to politics. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's pretty fun. That's fine. Well, you're a job creator, Chad. I mean, that's a, that's a talking point for Republicans right there, even if your father was a Democrat. Um, <laughs> so well, that's a really interesting story. So it sounds like you, you know, you came into politics because of a familial connection long before law school. Um, but you mentioned kind of several points of both inflection and reflection, I think, along the way that that made you pause and evaluate the political landscape and and try to decide, you know, well, I think I can be useful. I think there's still a place for me, even if even if you don't feel like you fit in or belong to one of the two larger parties. Yeah. And and to be clear, you know, I actually swore off politics because of you know, when I went to college and so I'm not getting into politics. I seen what it does. I see what it happens when you try to do the right thing. And you know, I'm not going to participate in this world. Um, now I guess, yeah, you're right. I had some different inflection points where I had different, I had different perspectives myself because I was at different periods of my time and different, you know, um, I like to think I'm still growing and, and my perspective is changing by th new things I learn. Um, but, I think the like kind of the, the core of it is there's always something that just kind of drove me back to like, well, it doesn't have to be this way. And, um, you know, and so that's kind of driven both my personal and my professional life is knowing, OK, well, there's something you can do. And yeah, it may not be the best way to try to make a living. But you know what? It's something that is always a component of you know, your pursuit of your personal and professional career that you can participate in and feel good about. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think, you know, we, we hear, we all, I'm sure we all know lots of folks who are disconnected and disaffected by politics, especially after the last couple of years, right? Like it has not been a, a pleasant time to be in the political arena and like you, I know a lot of folks that are just sick of it, often because of what we see on social media and the you know, the lack of civil discourse. That isn't necessarily new, although I, I think we could argue that it's gotten worse. But we we see in your story the point where you, you swore off and said, I'm not going to do it. And yet you came back or you decided you could still be involved and you could still use your voice. And in fact, work towards building a system that allows more voices to come in. And I've got to believe that that, that effort, right, both in California and elsewhere, is a solution to this problem, right, of this, of this deeply partisan divide and this bickering that we see on both sides, is that getting more folks into the room, uh, more folks into the ballot box, right, more folks into the public square to participate is the antidote Otherwise, if we leave, we just end up with two dudes shouting at each other outside, right? Let's, I mean, <laughs> well, I think you're kind of hitting the core of it. It's divisive, right? And people have enough stuff to worry about. It's like, how do I, I got to go to work and make money to feed my kids and do this stuff? Why, why would I want to participate in this process that is full of division and negativity, right? And add that to what's most important, 
in my life and my family and my job and, you know, those kinds of things. Right. So that's also, I think what's kind of framed the perspective in terms of reform, right? I don't have this solution and there's no silver bullet. Right. But, uh, what I, what I try to focus on and one thing I do, I qualify, you know, a lot of my work's been done with the independent voter project and a lot of people go, okay, well, you must be really anti-party. And I don't think a really, if you're advocating for voter rights, you're really anti, you, you can be anti-party. Um, really what you are, you're anti-non-competition, anti, anti right? In that I, I honestly believe that we've created a structure where we've incentivized division. And at, by incentivizing division, that's been bad for voters because it divides them into camps. But it's also bad for the parties, right? I always use the expression, I say, you know, okay, party, the parties are very strong right now if you measure their power in terms of seats, right? They hold a lot of seats. But as evidenced by the growth of independent voters by registration and self-identification, I'd argue that their power is actually weakening because they don't have as they don't have the credibility, right? And that's a direct result of the accountability. I believe when you open up the primary election system or you force competition for both parties to compete for everybody, that if you measure party strength by how many people support them and believe that they're doing a good job, I think you'd, you'd, you'd substantially strengthen the party. So ironically, where some people may attack us as saying, oh, you're anti-party, I believe the long-term result of what we're trying to accomplish is to create stronger parties because they're more responsive to more voters, right? Yeah, I was at a, a presentation uh, given by uh, author and political scientist Lee Drutman um, last year, I think, where he, uh, it was shortly after he had published his book, The Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. Mm -hmm. And someone in the audience kind of asked this question of like, do you think we should do away with the parties? And his answer was basically, no, I think we need more stronger parties. And right now we have these two big groups that are somewhat weak and people don't like them, but they exist out of like momentum almost. Right. But mm -hmm. it could, there's an argument to be made for having a multi-party system um, with other, other entities that are well-structured that have, concrete ideologies um, and that it forces the American government to maybe function more like a, like what we see in England or in some other countries where they have to form kind of a coalition and work together. Because if you just take all Americans, it's not like we evenly divide into two groups or even three groups, right? Like we all have some, some overlap and some, you know, we're, we feel passionate about this thing and not about this other thing. And so by having, more parties that are stronger, we could, in effect, better represent voters in a, in a more accurate way. Right. Well, so something you're touching upon, I, I think, is really at the center of this. And I think there's in the reform world, too, you, you have very different perspectives. I just had a back and forth with Richard Winger. So for election reform wants, I'm sure you're probably affiliate, uh, familiar with Richard. But I think it starts with, and this is the crux of the legal cases that we filed for um, Independent Voter Project. And when I go into whether it's a high school or a law school, I, I always ask the same question. What's the fundamental building block of democracy? Right. So I ask, I'll ask you, Andy, what's the fundamental building block of democracy? Uh, ooh, I feel like this is a trick question. I'm going to say the voter or the person. That would be my answer. Right. 
And so I think what they're right now, we have a conflict between perspectives, right? The idea, if it looking in a box, and I'm not arguing for or against more parties, right? But starting the conversation at should we have more or less parties presupposes that political parties are the building blocks of democracy, right? That you have to organize into a state-sanctioned political party in order to have a meaningful vote, right? So part of the core of what our legal arguments are is that you can have two parties or 17 parties, but most fundamental, if you're going to have a functioning democracy that is responsive to the entire electorate, you have to view the election process from the eyes of the individual voter, right? And that's why the Independent Voter Project has pursued lawsuits in New York, New Jersey. We're pursuing one in California because it's from that fundamental perspective. If you have a closed primary, for example, in New Jersey, right? Will anybody say, tell, does anybody honestly believe that primary elections are not extraordinarily important to the election process, right? Pretty hard to argue against that. Well, take a state like New Jersey. By legal, the law of New Jersey, because it's a closed primary state, says it's okay. It, we understand that 47% of our electorate has registered to vote, but consciously said, I don't want to register with one of the party. But by the state sanctioned law, you have no right to vote in this primary election because you've exercised what we argue is a First Amendment right to not associate with these two private organizations. And the state goes further and says, by the way, you're gonna pay for it anyway, right? So, you know, we have all these discussions and, and I'm not diminishing the voter ID issue is one that's very important. Do I think both sides hyperbolize the heck out of it? And, and you know, yeah, are there racists on one side? I'm sure there's some. Are there, you know, other people that are trying to take advantage? Are, I'm sure there's some. It's an important issue. I don't think the core of it, the people that really believe in it are doing it for racial reasons or non-racial reason, blah, blah, blah. But we have a larger issue of, fund of fundamental voting rights where you're denying access in New Jersey to half of the electorate because they've made a First Amendment right decision not to join a political party and then forcing them to pay the election. So the question I always ask is, yeah, is as important as voter ID is, and it should be a discussion, why would no sides even touch this issue, right? It's because there's a, I, I believe there's a larger fundamental right that goes back, that affects the building blocks of our democracy, the individual voter, which the parties who have a total right to exist want to ignore because they want to be the building blocks of democracy. Yeah, that's so interesting. It's it is really interesting. I think you know just being with Nanner and working with organizations in so many different states and learning about the like uniqueness of each state's system, from right. voter registration to the actual election system and how much it varies. And you get to see, I think, you know, from a top level view, the what works and what doesn't, and you know where the the landmines might be and. And you also hear different opinions. So, you know, here mm -hmm. in, uh, as, as I think our listeners probably know by now, I live in Oklahoma and we, in our state, when you register to vote, you have to declare your party affiliation or non-affiliation, right? And so mm -hmm. there's a, we've got right now Republicans, Democrats, um, and then I think the Libertarian Party has met the threshold 
to be a recognized party. So they're on the form and mm-hmm. then you can you can pick uh, unaffiliated or what we commonly refer to as independents. Right. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's a closed primaries, but it's up to the parties to decide if they want to allow voters. So mm-hmm. for the last couple of cycles, the Democrats have uh, have allowed independents. And I think some of that is because the number of independents is growing in Oklahoma like it is in many states, such that it is about equal with the number of Democrats. And then the, the Republicans and the uh, Libertarians have had closed primaries. So that results in a significant number of races, like a significant proportion of our state legislature that are elected in the primary because there is not a Democratic challenger that files. And so that person is elected without the other half or more of the of the electorate of the voters being able to cast a vote in that. And I think now what we've seen in our state, and we've seen this in a few others, right? We're starting to see states like um, uh, Utah was dealing with this and somebody else uh, that we talked about with with Rob Ritchie in our episode mm-hmm. earlier, that that you have more extreme candidates and you're starting to see, I, I will say, more traditional Republicans who are worried that if they don't open their primaries, oh, it was Virginia. That was the other state. They had a an uh, they used ranked choice voting, I guess, in their in their primary election for the same purpose of like, should we allow other voices to vote to help moderate our own party's decision making process? Which is mm-hmm. like, there's an irony there of like, you want right. it private for this reason until it's until it doesn't work for you, and now you're like, oh wait, we we need other people's voices. <laughs> Yeah. And, and that's, and that's one of the things I also argue about, look, you can take a state like, you know, New York, they have the big, you know, attention on the ranked choice voting. And I think from the election reformers, broader perspective, huge advancement, right. Brought up national attention, brings up this discussion, right. But what about the viewpoint of a, uh, of an, of an independent voter or a Republican for that matter in New York, everybody knows the winner of the democratic primary is de facto going to be the winner. So if you're an independent voter in New York, or even if you would want to register as a Democrat to vote, but you didn't do it six months before the election because New York's election laws don't <laughs> make you do that, there's there's no benefit for you, right? So there was a reform that I think advanced the discussion and the conversation. I think it's healthy stuff, but it, I only bring that up to you know highlight one that you started, there's different laws in different states, but also um, to highlight that we go with what we know today. And it's so hard to reframe, you know, the perspective in the courtroom, the perspective from, you know, political, even reformers to say, you know, one of the solutions we offered in California was we take it as an axiom. The Republicans have a primary. The Democrats have a primary. California did, you know, and Washington, I think, did something relatively revolutionary. They said, we're not going to have private primaries. We're going to have nonpartisan primaries. Everybody's going to be treated the same. But there's also nothing says that a state like Oklahoma or Virginia or Kansas or New Jersey, you could just have another primary, call it the nonpartisan primary, call it the public primary, right? Remove the conflict between the party's right to elect their nominee and the voter's right to participate. You could totally remove it. And then that resolves all the legal fight of what's more important, the party right or the voter right. 
you know, we could pursue that and then use things like ranked choice voting in the general election to make sure we don't get people elected with 20% of the vote, right? So I think there's all kinds of ways you can do it. California has, I think, advanced the ball in one way, right? And New York has advanced it in another way. I think where we true where we start seeing where election reform becomes very powerful is as these groups, which they are now, come together and say, hey, look, there's a lot of different components. It's going to be different in every state. And there's all these different factors that, you know, if, if we just accept that today's not working and there's a lot of different ways to do it that, you know, just because they haven't been done yet doesn't mean that they, they can't be, um, that we could have a lot better election process. But throughout the time, you have to be cognizant that it's not even because they're bad people. It's the nature of, of individuals. And it's certainly the nature of large private organizations is to protect their power. That I always say, if you're doing an election reform and it's not opposed by both sides of not 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 both parties and their voters, but both sides of the insiders that really understand how to win elections, then it's probably not really nonpartisan election reform, right? Because you're not actually threatening their power structure. That's right. Yeah. Early on, I had a a, a mentor that said. I called him one day and I said, I got party people from both sides that are upset with me. He said, well, you're doing the right thing. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, uh, you know, you, you've mentioned a bunch of reforms um, that are kind of being discussed or implemented certain places mm -hmm. for you, Chad, what do you feel like are some of the most exciting developments in the reform movement right now? I mean, the most, uh, I think the most exciting development I see, I know maybe this sounds fuzzy, but is, is the fact that reformers are talking to each other. I mean, you got guys like Rob Ritchie has been working a long time on um, ranked choice voting and people like Dan Howe from the independent voter project for a long time on, you know, uh, nonpartisan primaries and open primaries who before they really knew each other would be arguing through op-eds about whether nonpartisan primaries or ranked choice voting were the best solution. And then you know, end up in a corner where 99% of the elect, uh, the people, uh, voters have no idea this conversation is going on. And now they're sitting at a table realizing, hey, we're on the same team, right? <laughs> we're on the same team. Let's work together. Um, you know, and that's happening with, you know, everybody from you know, Unite America, open primaries, like a lot of these organizations, I think, are coming up with creative solutions. So you see uh, a new organization like Catherine Gell's Institute for a Political Innovation coming up with a top five, which marries nonpartisan primaries with ranked choice voting general elections. I think those are the exciting developments. There's a you know conversation brewing. Uh, here in uh, California and, and most specifically in San Diego, where we're now going into a new election cycle with a huge coalition, including a lot of folks that haven't traditionally been in the election reform conversation, supporting doing something like a top four or a top five primary. Like, so for me, I think the most exciting thing is that you know, 10 years ago, there was, you know, four people in a room and then two of them were arguing with the other two. And then the rest of the world was just like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, go back to work. And now there's a community and that community has kind of gotten over some of the initial, you know, what's your real agenda? You know, no, you, you, you don't support my solution. So you must, you must be a part of the problem to, Hey, wait, there's a lot of us 
we have different perspectives and really none of us know the exact solution, but I bet by working together, we can probably accomplish a lot more because um, the hurdles are high enough as it is. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I'm excited about working at Manor, right? Is this this sense of teamwork and community that has been percolating over the last couple of years. And I, I would extend it um, even beyond those organizations that are mm-hmm. even beyond like our, our member organizations and the other groups that, that are overtly in the democracy reform space, right? There are, I've spoken with education groups and healthcare groups around the country who are feel like they just keep hitting brick walls with one party or the other um, or with something that's systemic and they're realizing, oh, hey, it's really tough for us to get ballot measures passed in our state for whatever reason. And we are understanding that there are structural things that go into this. And so I kind of anticipate that over the next, you know, two, five, six, eight years, we will see more organizations coming to the table saying, Listen, we've we've got to fix these structural things if we want to have any chance at having a functional democracy at all. Um, and it really does take, I don't know, people in some ways humbling themselves, but also like showing some willingness to engage in a conversation and recognize that they have a solution. It is not necessarily the solution. Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. And through that collegiality and that conversation and and understanding where we all come from that, you know, uh, a a one plus one is three kind of, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, um, might happen. And that could be the path that leads us forward a little bit further. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think the hardest part of all of this is understanding that like there's, you have to put your personal ideological and, policy oriented issues aside right and understand that by do by doing reform you by definition need to work with people who are not going to agree with you on policy decisions because you believe that you're creating a process that will allow everybody to resolve those policy decisions better than they are done today i think that's the hardest part if that's the hardest part to bring folks together you have to bring groups from the conservative or the liberal or you know, any other uh, side or spectrum of the aisle um, to work together and say, you know what, I totally agree, disagree with you on economic policy here or social policy here or whatever. But what we both agree on is that there's a political game going on and the referee and the rules of the game are not fair to us playing the game, right? So let's focus on the referee and the rules and get it done. And that's really hard. It's easier to, I think, say than do is get people together that, you know, you know, I, I might hate a candidate that you love and you may love a candidate that I hate, but you know, there's something more core to the rules of the game that we need to focus on. Um, and then maybe we'll find candidates that neither one of us hate so much. <laughs> that's exactly right. Well, Chad, this has been uh, an inspiring conversation. I feel makes me uh, feel a little inspired and reminded about the fact that that we have good people out there working on this from all sides, and uh, and that there is a a growing momentum behind it. And so, I look forward to the future. 
it's easy to get pessimistic today uh, when you follow politics, but I, I honestly believe there is reason for optimism. And uh, no, I appreciate everything you do, Andy, and and understand that there's a lot of organizations inside Nanner and outside Nanner that come in from a lot of different perspectives than me. And that uh, you know, the best thing we can do is start talking to each other. Yeah, that's right. Chad, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is a program of the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and details on how you can join, please visit our website at nonpartisanreformers.org.